Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, you're listening to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today we have a very special program, as we'll be discussing a different kind of book than usual, one that has chapters authored by 50 different contributors and spans an intimidating 1,100 pages over two volumes. The book is titled A Companion to U.S. Foreign Relations, Colonial Era to the Present, and it was published last year by Wiley Blackwell. The production of The Companion over the last few years, involving such a large number of contributors, constituted a discipline-wide debate about what the history of U.S. foreign relations has been, what it is currently, and where it's going. And so I think it's a really useful um, uh, candidate for a podcast like ours because we'll um, uh, have a chance to talk about all of these things. Our guides through this gargantuan book will be Christopher Dietrich, a historian at Fordham University. His work looks at decolonization, resource extraction, and the U.S. relations with the Global South, and he is the editor of The Companion. As well, we have two historians who contributed chapters on either end of the book's chronology. Um, We'll be speaking with Emily Conroy Kretz, a historian at Michigan State University who researches the history of religion, foreign missionaries, and women in the early republic. And finally, Megan Black, a historian at MIT whose research looks at 20th century environmental history and relations between the state and capital. And so this has been a long introduction, so let's just get right into it. Thank you all for being on the program today. You bet. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Dexter. Um, And uh, and just just to begin, I'd love to hear how the three of you got sucked into studying the history of U.S. foreign relations. And so, Emily, do you want to maybe start just sharing your experiences Sure. I um, I got into foreign relations history by accident, actually, uh, coming into it from religious history and women's history, um, had been working on, was going to be working on um, women and religion and early in grad school was starting to dig around into a possible seminar paper on marriage and missionaries. And when I got into some of the sources was really surprised to see what actually happened when these first missionaries went to India in 1812 and the war of 1812 began on their way. Um, So they sort of left during time of peace and arrived in um, British territory when the U S was at war with, with England and was so intrigued by why this had happened and what they thought they were doing and um, how they handled that situation in the years coming and um, just sort of fell into being really interested uh, first in Anglo-American relations and then sort of U.S. and the world more generally in the early republic in the 19th century. So it seemed weird to me that those kinds of stories had not been part of the U.S. history I had been uh, taught before in college. So that's sort of where how I ended up here, uh, very accidentally. Mm-hmm. And Megan, how about yourself? Well, I trained in an American studies program at George Washington University. So I was straddling fields and I really empathize with what Emily just said about the kind of happy accidents of sources taking you down a bit of a rabbit hole. I had an interest in something like minerals and an intersection of domestic and foreign relations, but from more of a cultural perspective and had um, had found some of these films that were sponsored by the U.S. Department of the Interior and were telling very global narratives about um, the pursuit of natural resources. The point at which I went to National Archives to then see the kind of textual document story behind these films was one that sort of fed into a more overtly project in U.S. foreign relations because I saw that these films were circulating overseas in the post-war era in the context of international development. And so the question shifted from, you know, what is being told in these um, in these films to how are these films um, going to Afghanistan? And that 
then in turn became a story about the U.S. Interior Department and its um, pushing beyond the threshold of existing borders um, and sovereignty in the United States. Mm-hmm. And Chris, yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I certainly I also uh, entered the field, uh, you know, sort of by uh, what Alexander Hamilton might have called dumb luck. Um, <laughs> I, I had a friend uh, from high school uh, who was uh, uh, in graduate school in the time that I was in Peace Corps. Uh, he sent me uh, his master's thesis uh, by mail, um, uh, and I, I, I read it. I thought it was fascinating, and I thought I, I could, I could, you know, I might be able to do this. Uh, and then I applied to graduate schools, uh, and I was accepted at the University of Texas uh, to work with Mark Lawrence, um, who then uh, had just finished uh, his book on the Vietnam Wars. Uh, and I thought I was going to do U.S. Latin American. Uh, relations and focus on U.S.-Mexico relations in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, but there wasn't as much of a documentary record uh, for that uh, declassified in the U.S. archives. Um, uh, and I sort of gravitated uh, in a similar way uh, uh, to, uh, to the way that Megan did by asking questions about that topic uh, that led me down the road to ask other questions um, about uh, the nature the nature of debt, um, where, it, uh, where it came from, uh, and to begin to look at the 1970s. Uh, so, you know, uh, I went down a few different rabbit holes in the research process, uh, and then I came out thinking about uh, sort of international elites and anti, anti-colonialism in oil. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, primary sources were um, sort of the, the gateway drug for, <laughs> for all of your projects and um, your interest in uh, U.S. foreign relations history. And, um, and Chris, I, I want to um, ask you about your um, approach. So in, in your introduction, you talk about um, the many histories of U.S. foreign relations rather than a singular story. Um, and the con- contributions in the two volumes really reflect this. Um, you know, more traditional topics um, are you know, sitting alongside, you know, more recent topics, um, or at least like more recently included in U.S. foreign relations topics. Um, and I think this embrace of pluralism, uh, it, it, it really marks the current field. Um, and I, I think to understand this, I think we I think we should really go back in time um, and think about what the field used to look like. Um, and so, uh, I mean, Chris or um, uh, Megan or Emily, um, can can one of you give us a, a snapshot of uh, what the history of U.S. foreign relations might have looked like in, say, the '80s or '90s? I can take a first crack at that, and I'd be really happy to hear what Megan and, and Emily think. One of the things that I was really excited about when I read uh, the first drafts of the different chapters uh, was to see uh, just how far back uh, different scholars were going when they were talking about their field and the uh, and the historiography uh, in their specific in their specific fields. Uh, and you get the idea uh, that. Um, you know, it really is a collective enterprise, not only now, uh, but over time, uh, it has been a collective enterprise of building, of building knowledge. Uh, so I've, I've, you know, felt like uh, sometimes that the distinction between, uh, between then and now, uh, between new approaches and more, uh, and more traditional ones, uh, is actually more dynamic and fluid uh, uh, than we usually talk about it, uh, because I think if you look back uh, at um, you know the historiography, say uh, in the late '80s and early '90s, when we have these big uh, big turns that people emphasize, um, uh, there really were histories then uh, that look a lot like uh, the new approaches now, and that those new approaches uh, approaches build on. And so I, I think that uh, you know some of the international turn and transnational turn, especially, but also the cultural turn, was evident. Um, uh, before uh, before we know it, and has actually been part of the history of U.S. foreign relations uh, for quite uh, for quite some time. Uh, so uh, that's that's one one part of it. Uh, a, another aspect, I suppose, uh, when we think about uh, how we tend to discuss these things, is sort of a movement away from traditional state based uh, emphases on uh, questions uh, on questions of power. Um, and I also, uh, you know, I think that a Big tent collective understanding uh, really is the consensus now, and I don't see you know this is a problem of moving away from a certain way of doing history. I, I would say that it uh, it actually you know builds on it uh, and uh, and adds to it in in important uh, in important ways. 
Yeah, I think that's right. The only thing I would add is that I think where we do see change is that some of those um, other approaches in gender history and cultural history that we're doing the kind of work that we now recognize as foreign relations history, maybe wouldn't have identified themselves that way earlier. And so what's been really interesting is sort of the, the, the tent seems bigger and more people are, are choosing to identify within sort of under that umbrella of foreign relations history, which makes it a really exciting field and a really exciting time to be doing this work. Great. I, I think those comments are so smart and I'll just add to this kind of theme of bridge building between fields by noting that, you know, there, there was some early interest. And especially when I think of the kind of mineral history as one um, umbrella to, to think through different investments um, across subfields, I, I see that folks like um, David Painter and others were thinking about capitalism and history of capitalism from a particular vantage point that in turn um, is, um, is you know elaborated by a, a different generation um, in the same way that the kind of Emily Rosenberg um, introduction of economic and cultural um, ideas to the kind of state power big tent that um, Chris described is something that has been elaborated and and helped to yes create a, a space in which people working at different intersections then feel a kind of um, a, a shared um, enterprise and. We've learned a lot from it, which is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree that all these comments are uh, super smart and they're making me think in so many different directions. Um, but, um, you know, like w- one of the things uh, across each of your comments was that, you know, there, there, there was work that um, uh, preceded uh, um, these, you know, international turns, um, transnational turns. Uh, but then like that work was then reincorporated into, uh, or like it, it started to self-identify as uh, U.S. foreign relations history. Well, I'm just thinking about like, like what were the factors that pushed the field to broaden and, and diversify in this way? I, I think that uh, you had uh, historians. I mean, I don't think any of us uh, can really speak with any, uh, any great expertise on this because we were, uh, uh, we were young uh, and not, uh, not probably not even in college, uh, and maybe not even in uh, in middle school or high school yet uh, when uh, when these changes happened. Uh, but it it seems to me uh, like there was sort of an expanding toolkit uh, that was being offered uh, to historians, um, uh, especially with the uh, with the cultural uh, with the cultural turn um, uh, that allowed. Uh, historians to uh, receive a wider range of training uh, in the sorts of questions that they could ask uh, and in the sorts of archives that they would look at. So, so not only uh, uh, what, what they, uh, what archives they look at, but the kind of questions they would ask of those, uh, of those archives. Uh, so I think that there was um, a great deal of, of training uh, that encouraged um, uh, sort of multiple perspectives um, and, and even interdisciplinary, uh, interdisciplinary work. Um, uh, in the 80s and 90s. I also think that uh, when it comes to the international international turn, uh, I believe that globalization um, uh, in, the, in the 70s and after uh, had a huge effect uh, on the ability of people to do sort of multi-local uh, research, um, uh, to travel, uh, to uh, Immerse themselves uh, in uh, in other cultures uh, to learn uh, to learn the languages uh, and to really try to understand um, you know usually bilateral relations uh, uh, fully from each uh, from each side. Uh, so you have you know I'm a U.S. Uh, and then name name this country name this region uh, historian uh, and a lot of people identified uh, as that type of historian. Uh, it seems to me like in the uh, in the 70s and 80s 90s and expanded beyond Europe. Uh, uh, because when I think about international history, um, uh, and I say that you know um, uh, that it existed before um, uh, it was uh, it was really named, uh, I'm usually thinking of uh, historians, um, you know, like uh, Akira Rie or, or Mark Trachtenberg, um, mm-hmm. uh, who were uh, who were really uh, looking at uh, at stories um, that had two parts, and they were fully immersed in each of those uh, in each of those parts. Okay, so. Just to move on to Emily's chapter, um, I think it'd be useful to kind of like dig into um, yeah some, some particular chapters and um, you know Emily's appears first in the chronology, uh, and and so Emily in your chapter 
which is called The Early Republic in a World of Empire, 1787 to 1848. Um, uh, you make the case for stretching conversations about um, the U.S. and empire way farther back than is traditionally done so. And so, like, you know, the the very traditional starting point is 1898 or maybe um, at some point in the 1890s. Um, but you make the case that like we, we should be thinking about empire basically from the founding of the United States. Can you walk um, our listeners through this? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, as you said that the, the traditional chronology would be 1898, which is the beginning of U S overseas empire. And what, 19th century historians, um, historians of the founding era have been doing work for a long time now on thinking about these moments earlier in American history that actually are imperial moments. And this is particularly true if we think about um, Native American history and indigenous history and U.S. relations with Native nations, our foreign relations. And that is a story of empire, it's a story of settler colonialism. And so what I do in the chapter here is I talk about the different language we use to talk about empire. Um, How was it that people in the founding generations were using that word because they did to describe the United States? What did they mean when they called America an empire? And then how does... um, how does that language sort of continue over the course of the century? Um, so I talk here about um, the um, sort of settler colonialism and um, what we have long talked about in, again, that sort of traditional language that Americans use when they talk about their history as expansion and expansionism, um, that that's also an imperial story. And we can talk about that as settler colonialism. Um, the colonization movement um, of freed African Americans to Liberia, that's a story of early American imperialism. That's the 1820s, 1830s. Uh, the missionary movement that I work on yeah, in my own research is um, a really useful window for thinking about how Americans were thinking about empire all over the place. Um, because what a lot of the logic that was behind these missionaries was that empires were a form of connecting different uh, different states and different peoples and could and should work for the good if they were sort of centered in Christian governments, which um, these early Americans understood the United States to be, um, as they understood the British to be. And so as they went out around the world, they were expecting to benefit from imperial structures, um, largely with um, with the British, um, but also with some American imperial organizations. And we're in practice really kind of working out, is this, um, how is how does empire look like on the ground? Is this working out the way that it should be? Is this, um, is this actually how the U.S. should be relating to the world? And so I think that um, sort of in my broader work and also in this chapter, what I've um, really found interesting with this, this group of folks is that we see that empire was not a code for, you know, a bad and oppressive form of government in this period. Uh, empire was the norm for world governments. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Americans who are coming out of being part of an imperial system are sort of thinking about themselves as potentially a new empire. Um, They wanted it to be a little bit different than how the British did it. Um, But that's because they mean, and so what, um, what some of this uh, sort of American revolution and uh, early Republican historiography talks about is that the revolution is, it's a war about empire, but not, um, not necessarily against empire. It's against the British empire. It's about against the relationship that the, that these 13 colonies had with that particular metropole. But that doesn't mean that when you get out of the, on the other side of the war, that everyone in the U S opposes empire as a governmental form. Um, Mm -hmm. They want it in a slightly different, you know, a slightly different framework, but um, a lot of that language makes sense. 
Sorry, I'm like for cutting you off. Um, no, I, I would actually love for you to really briefly talk about this like key example in your work because it's 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 really interesting. Uh, it's the example of um, these missionaries who tried to get the U.S. to build a colony in Singapore. Yes. Um, I think that just like unlocks a lot of the stuff that you're talking about. The Singapore story is great. So this was in, um, in the late 1830s when a group of missionaries from the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions were, um, they were in Singapore and their work as missionaries, they were there um, working on their language skills, translating text, distributing um, distributing tech, uh, tracts and Bibles and things like that. And they wrote to the United States um, after having met with the American consul and spoken to people on the ground about how they need to set up, um, really should consider setting up a colonization society for an American colony in Singapore. And this doesn't happen. This is a story of failure. Um, But I think sometimes these stories of things that don't work out can actually be really useful windows into what people thought could happen, actually. Um, And so what they had wanted to do, what they meant by a colony is actually a lot like they wanted this colonial society to be modeled on the American colonization society for Liberia. So it would be bringing um, sort of a group of American colonists um, who the missionaries said that they understood that there were a lot of pious Americans who were hardworking, who were not clergy, um, who were interested in this part of the world, interested in helping this part of the world, but wouldn't be doing so as missionaries. Um, they would be doing so as um, there'd be a, a, they wanted a watchmaker, they wanted farmers, they wanted mechanics and people like this who could come and set up a, um, an American colony that would model for um, local people sort of what civilized life would look like. And the consul thought this was a great idea. Um, they had started talking about what, you know, how would they be able to purchase the property for this? Um, what would that look like? What would be the legal implications of this? And it gets quashed largely because of concerns in Boston, not because not concerns that this is, um, you know, just a ridiculous idea, um, but rather concerns that this is it's not practical because of Anglo-American relations. And so the worry that um, the, I'm going to say in Boston, that's where the um, the missionary society was based. uh, The folks back there were worried that the British would react negatively to sort of Americans coming in and trying to set up their own colony, these places. And they worried that it would have have bad effects on sort of the global work that they were doing elsewhere around the world. Um, But in theory, they liked this idea. And this was what they had been doing elsewhere. It was what certainly was going on in Liberia. Um, In sort of the practical terms of what they were describing is a lot like what they, um, what was going on with um, Americans in Hawaii. Um, Very much like what American missionaries were doing in, um, with some Native American uh, nations, sort of setting up these, um, setting up schools that were um, really about industrial education and um, things like this and bringing about a, um, a transformation in the culture, in um, the economy, um, and often, um, you know, they hoped eventually the government too, um, as well as gender relations and social relations and things like this. And I think that is a story that we're not used to thinking about sort of Americans in the 1830s, you know, Im- imagining their place in the world in that way. But there's lots of stories like that. And there's lots of Americans around the world who are, you know, maybe not trying to set up colonies everywhere. Um, but there are filibusters um, who are, you know, doing kind of similar sorts of imagination um, about the U.S. relations with Latin America um, in these years. And once we, I think, come to terms with those stories, the chronology that we've been working with for a long time of American empire just falls apart and we really have to come to terms with the fact that this is a country that has been, you know, experimenting with and thinking about and practicing different forms of empire throughout its entire history. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I think that's what makes this periodization um, that you're talking about so so much more so it's just so powerful um, because it, it does um, uh, force us to, uh, to to rethink like U.S. history um, even more broadly. Um, and I, I would love to. I mean, there, yeah, there's so much in your chapter that we could talk about, but um, in the interest of time, uh, I just want to jump ahead to Megan's chapter. Um, uh, which again, I, I, I really enjoyed. Um, it's titled um, "Mineral Frontiers in the 20th Century," and Megan, I, I want to I want to start with how you start your um, chapter, which is um, an anecdote about how the U.S. was imagining setting up a, a mine on the moon. And I know this is something that you've um, written about, um, in the, well, yeah, in elsewhere in addition to this mm-hmm. chapter. Mm-hmm. And I, I would just love to hear like hear that story, and then also like what it says about um, you know th- like th- this moment in U.S. history, minerals, and U.S. foreign policy. Um, great. Well, like you, I was struck by this anecdote of a, a sort of press release on July 4th, 1965, where the U.S. government is celebrating its efforts to research mining the moon, which posed many logistical challenges and was not in many ways within reach because of the um, technological and um, economic situation of the moment. But to me, it brings together two interesting pillars of Um, the legacies of American empire, which are minerals and frontiers. And they're very much describing this effort as an extension of the United States efforts to harness new mineral frontiers, this time in lunar landscapes. Um, But the, the moment in the 1960s is one that helps really pick up on, on the narrative that Emily sort of um, gave us about the the lead up to the 19th century um, in that, they're very much grappling with legacies of empire. And one thing that I've found about focusing on minerals um, as a as a kind of physical thing, as a spatial thing that is tied to ideas of frontiers as well, is that they get at the problem of borders very um, effectively, especially when we think about a century where there are increased global commitments to respecting borders. So um, much of what the the kind of historiography that I try to track with is grappling with is a set of transitions over the 20th century from conditions of um, formal empire continuing to present a set of, of problems for the United States. It had already undertaken different forms of empire in a continental sense, in an island and overseas sense, in the Pacific and Caribbean. Um, but it was also operating increasingly in a, in a context where international order was constantly debated, um, where um, the, the nation itself transitioned to other informal means of continuing to exert um, a kind of influence or exploitation of landscapes beyond borders, which minerals help us to to get at the heart of, um, in other forms, like a more like global hegemony frame. But thinking about minerals reminds us that there have been situations in which a kind of raw material exploitation that we associate with things like the, the bad forms of empire that the United States would like to eschew, right? Like the British imperialism that it escaped, you know, in its anti-colonial struggle, the um, other bad forms of imperialism that had been exposed through kinds of humanitarian exposés like that of King Leopold in um, Belgian Congo or um, other other figures, Cecil Rhodes in, in Southern Africa. So the problem is that the continued pursuit of minerals helped to unravel this experience exceptionalist narrative in many ways, as we track with a different array of actors operating across borders. Sometimes it is representatives of the U.S. state. Sometimes it is corporate um, interests that are being supported by or constrained by uh, the U.S. state in zones around the world, including the global south. Um, And when we think with the environment, you know, moving from the, the background of the story to the to the foreground, we can see that massive transformations of, of landscapes unfolded in a kind of post-war period at a point at which, through the founding of the United Nations, many, including the United States, signaled this, this commitment to borders and self-determination. Um, yet, when looking at 
the ground, one sees that many of the asymmetries and dynamics associated with imperialism continued in, in new forms. So the, the kinds of problems that um, Chris's work and others get at around decolonization um, presents incentives to um, think about new zones. And this is sort of one way that I end up in that chapter and how I end up in outer space, right, is to think of seemingly unpopulated expanses or alternatives closer to home that seem um, within reach that present a kind of material um, set of possibilities, but that are not going to trigger the same anti-imperialist alarms that had um, long been raised because, of course, there had been resistance across borders and internally to the United States against a kind of project that um, continued the expansive unfolding the, the, that, as Emily pointed out, begins with settler colonialism and, and has different names attached to it over time. But here we see then that the oceans, the continental shelf, um, and aspects of outer space become appealing as venues for um, these continued pursuits that aren't inevitable and aren't even necessarily rational or logical in some sense, but that um, that have kind of continued relevance in a, a 20th century context. Uh, yeah, and I, I just wanted to pick up on uh, both of these uh, comments and say, uh, that uh, uh, in their in these essays and and many of the other essays, uh, we really do see the benefit of uh, cross pollination uh, between uh, newer turns and uh, and more traditional uh, ways, uh, state centered ways of doing of doing diplomatic uh, diplomatic history. Um, you know, in uh, Emily's chapter, uh, she mentions briefly. Uh, Wooster versus Georgia uh, from 1832. I've just been reading Claudio Sant's uh, new book uh, on uh, on Indian removal, uh, and um, you know that's that's one example where you have uh, sort of a very strong uh, what I guess we could describe as policy history or political history or, di- or diplomatic history uh, alongside um, a transnational uh, a transnational emphasis and emphasis on ideology um, uh, that really strengthens uh, those uh, those histories. She also mentions. Uh, Jennifer Thigpen uh, and uh, and her work on Hawaiian political uh, leaders, which definitely enriches our understanding of uh, the success uh, or failure of different American uh, of American policies uh, in that uh, in that time. In um, Megan's uh, work, um, there are you know a number uh, a number of examples of uh, of this as well. Whether uh, it has to do with strategic uh, minerals uh, or um, you know, when she notes uh, the effect uh, of um, the uh, location of strategic minerals in certain countries, shaping how American leaders deal with those countries' governments uh, and really accepting, uh, I guess, anti-democratic governments uh, in those uh, in those countries as necessary uh, for that uh, for that stability, uh, and that speaks to something that happened more broadly in uh, in these volumes. Uh, that I wasn't expecting when uh, I asked different authors to do that, but that was this emphasis um, uh, that Megan's noted on American uh, empire, uh, on imperialism as a, as a framework. Um, uh, there are a lot of chapters that uh, that discuss empire uh, really explicitly, whether it's um, you know April uh, Merlot's chapter on U.S. drug policy, uh, Andrew Friedman's chapter on ideology, uh, Mark Palin on political uh, political economy and war. War and Peace, uh, or uh, Sarah Steinbach Pratt's chapter, uh, which looks at the historiography uh, uh, really closely of uh, of American Empire and many and many many others. Uh, so it seems uh, to me like this sort of imperial imperial framework is a really uh, a really interesting one uh, that's getting a lot of attention uh, from uh, from scholars. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up all those other chapters. Um, <laughs> Andrew Friedman's in particular has this amazing line that I think, um, uh, yeah, really shows, um, uh, yeah, like how um, how present the imperial framework is in these volumes. He writes, um, you know, the, in reference to all these, you know, scholars of you know history of capitalism, labor, geography, American studies. You know, he he says they don't just ask 
the classic question, does the U.S. have or not have an empire? They say, look at all this. What would you call it? <laughs> and I, right. I think that, yeah, that these older like definitional disputes are kind of like cast aside. You know, there's this acceptance, there's a consensus that the U.S. is an empire. Like what kind of empire is it? And, uh, and yeah, and I, I mean, I, I didn't, uh, I wasn't thinking about this when I originally asked um, Emily and Megan to um, uh, come onto the podcast, but yeah, bo- both of their chapters also like stretch empire, sp- stretch the imperial framework, um, you know, geographically, but then also temporally in interesting ways. I don't know if Megan or Emily, you'd like to chime in on, uh, on the imperial I'm I'm jealous of um, of Friedman's line. That was really good. (laughs) You know, and I think it gets to, you know, some of the stuff that, you know, Paul Kramer talks about um, in his article on uh, imperialism versus empire, right? That um, I think the, we have spent a lot of time as a time as American historians really arguing over, you know, was it or wasn't it? Mm -hmm. And that's not the most productive or interesting question. Um, And really is, you know, what kind of empire. What do we mean when we're talking about imperialism? And let's look at the power dynamics and let's look at, um, you know, hierarchies of race within this. And if we, you know, can, I think, get away from, you know, I think really is sort of a legacy of exceptionalist approaches to American history that, you know, the U.S. wasn't an empire. All these other places were an empire until, you know, much later in its history. And, if we can kind of get past that and, you know, yeah, like look at this stuff and say, okay, well, what words would we use? <laughs> How should we describe this? Um, then that lets us get at the much more interesting questions in the history. I would just add that these comments are making me think about something Chris had said earlier about the, the expanded toolkit and the cultural turn as well, and how influential something like Cultures of U.S. Imperialism by Amy Kaplan and Donald Pease was yeah. for, for me in my work, and I think in, in many scholars' work in, in the kind of foreign relations world as something that helps us to um, get at a different set of questions as well about the logic of empire and about the the different rationales by which the United States could maintain a very important narrative of uh, its global power, which is that it was fundamentally natural and good. So um, in in many different ways that um, the attention to differentiation within the nation, to questions of race and gender in in U.S., um, U.S. history is one that has allowed um, allowed scholars to to see intersections then between domestic and foreign and to ask about the the things that are that must be invisible for certain wisdoms to hold true especially vis-a-vis benevolent power yeah um, uh, Chris do you want to say anything else on, on this before we move on I I mean, I could I could just add that I think that a lot of what we're talking about here has to do with national identity uh, and how the United States um, and different actors in the United States perceive their place uh, um, in in the world. Um, uh, but no, I I, I think that uh, I really um, was just nodding my head uh, as <laughs> as Megan and Emily and Emily were speaking. Um, there are a lot of really great essays in uh, in this volume uh, that think think about these questions uh, explicitly but also tied to specific moments um, uh, in uh, in US history which is why um, I, I wanted to organize it uh, chronologically uh, and let the authors uh, sort of uh, use their expertise to, to draw what they thought the most important uh, important themes uh, where Emily has a great line at the end of hers about the Mexican uh, the Mexican War. Uh, and uh, she says, when Americans argued about the Mexican War, they're arguing about national identity uh, and their country's role in the world. Uh, and then she lays out uh, sort of the opponents' arguments uh, and supporters of the wars, uh, the wars' arguments, um, and then discusses filibusterism uh, and manifest and manifest destiny, and makes the point uh, that this question of identity um, uh, and different identities uh, as they relate uh, to foreign relations. Uh, need to be studied uh, from all different uh, perspectives, you know, uh, political, cultural, um, uh, race, gender, uh, et cetera. Uh, so I think here, uh, for me, national identity is, uh, has been a really useful uh, 
way to think about uh, the exercise, the exercise of power. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and sort of continuing on this theme of um, the imperial, like wh- one of the really exciting and critical and necessary changes to the field in recent years um, is the increasingly common move to frame relations between Native American nations and the United States as a form of foreign relations. And so, uh, I mean, yeah, like um, I'm thinking about, you know, work like um, Brian DeLay's book, you know, on the uh, um, uh, the, the U.S.-Mexican War, uh, but then also Elspeth Martini's chapter in the, the first volume is, is really good on this. Um, I mean, I, 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 I feel myself kind of teeing up this question, uh, but I think it's important to talk about anyway. But like, why, why do you think it took so long for historians of foreign relations, uh, historians of U.S. foreign relations um, to make this move? Well, that's a good question. Yes. <laughs> you know, I think, oh, it's too bad Elspeth isn't here because she's so brilliant on this. Um, I actually um, am working on another edited volume um, and I'm quoting with um, Michael Blakeman and Nolani Arista on early American empire. And one of the things that we were trying to do, we are trying to do in that volume is bring together a bunch of different groups of scholars who have been sort of siloed in their conversations about these exact topics that we're talking about right now around uh, empire and early America. And, you know, we're finding that a ton of the, of our chapters in that volume are on native American history and um, settler colonialism. And it's, you know, I wonder if, you know, this work isn't new. It's not like, you know, the people who have been working on Native American history have not for a long time been talking about America as an empire. Um, I think this is part of what I meant when I um, was saying earlier about sort of the, you know, more people are choosing to identify with foreign foreign relations, <laughs> um, that the sense that, um sort of that existing work is now able to be a part of the conversation um, is sort of being brought to the table and um, sort of happening in different contexts is, is the change that, that we're seeing. Um, and why it took foreign, um, foreign relations scholars to take so long to wake up to the fact that Native American nations were foreign nations and relations with them were foreign relations. Um, you know, I wish I knew, but it is, um, I think it's, a, it's really for the good that now we are sort of seeing more of an incorporation of, you know, that existing and ongoing scholarship into our understanding of American foreign relations. I, I really like your comments there, Emily. It's a, a great framing and exciting to see this kind of intersection um, become more highly trafficked. Um, thinking about that question, I, I am um, really um, conjuring or, or calling to mind Brian DeLay's essay in Diplomatic History that puts forward the idea of polities as a way to get out of a problem of the way historical actors coming from a kind of Western Enlightenment frame perceived Indigenous sovereignty as something like a lesser order of um, a, something that didn't conform to political understandings of a kind of modern governance structure. And there are reasons that indigenous nations wouldn't want to accept the the kind of imposition of those categories either. Um, Whereas polities is something that allows us to think through the consonances or the the continuities between and across these ways of organizing society and um, marshalling resources and, and directing action. So, you know, I think on some level, there has been a, a way in which historians have followed the assumptions of historical actors who, you know, shared in that kind of downgrading set of assumptions. But from a kind of historiographical perspective, the the kind of insistence that the United States was not imperial is one that participated in that erasure, right? Because, exactly. you know, it must it must sustain the myth that the United States was not an empire from the settler colonial contact and moment of dispossession that became more and more systematic over time. And the downgrading, I think, is really apparent to me in like the 20th century frame where, you know, there's such a kind of assumption of its um, its being uh, effectively disbanded or um, subordinated in and through the kind of assimilationist policies that um, that set up 
the the conditions of the 20th century, even as uh, Native nations continue to assert a right to sovereign distinction and cultural separation. Um, but yeah, I think I think that was a fascinating line, Dexter, to kind of draw between Emily and I as um, as I then think about some Native nations trying to deal with the problem of 20th century actors arriving at reservation boundaries and and seeking different kinds of arrangements, like the um, the leasing of minerals to facilitate different kinds of national interests, whether in energy or or other commodities. And um, and that is is something that does seem to to recapitulate longstanding um, <laughs> dispossessive drives, even as it it also takes new forms in the 20th century moment when borders are meant to be respected, when indigenous self determination is formally recognized, not just in a kind of national policy frame, but also at the level of the United Nations. Yeah, I, I would just uh, very quickly uh, um, add. Add to that uh, that uh, Elspeth in her chapter, uh, you know, calls uh, for uh, sort of uh, new works uh, in uh, U.S. Native American diplomacies uh, that are uh, policy focused, legal. Uh, look at borderlands uh, as uh, as a potential as a potential question, uh, and bring in uh, post colonial uh, and ethno historical. Uh, uh, methods, uh, all of which, uh, in some ways, uh, address this question of sovereignty uh, as being um, uh, more fungible uh, than it is uh, than it is on paper. Um, I, I think Megan's work does that really well uh, in her book when she talks about the 1930s, and then again uh, when she moves into the uh, into the 19, uh, 1970s and questions of uh, of extraction on on uh, Navajo land. Uh, so I, I I do think this is really really fruitful, and it, it points to some interesting continuities that uh, that can be can be explored. I wonder, uh, you know, in the um, sort of post World War II era, uh, where you have um, you know a number of people who were uh, who were trained uh, in the U.S. government uh, to work uh, as educators on uh, on reservations, um, uh, what do they do uh, when uh, that? bureaucratic system uh, begins to close down a little bit. Um, uh, from what I understand, many of them might have moved into the Foreign Service uh, to work for USAID uh, or, for the, or for the State Department. Uh, and so I think that uh, when we ask these kinds of questions, uh, we open up uh, you know, new avenues that might be fruitful, they might not be, but they force us to ask really, really interesting questions. Yeah, that, that's that's a um, a really intriguing example, and and I think it it, it shows that you know like historical actors like they, they might materially be experiencing um, you know relations between the United States and um, uh, Native American uh, nations as foreign relations, but they might actually not see that as such. Um, so something that I would like to bring up uh, is um, Daniel Bessner and Fred Logovol's um, recent article, which I think is, I mean, like it, it, it kickstarted one of the um, like biggest or most vociferous uh, um, historiographical debates in, um, you know, at least like in the last year. Um, and and, and j- yeah, just for our listeners, um, it's called Recentering the United States in Historiography of American Foreign Relations. And um, like essentially what they're doing, at least the way I read it, is they're making two historical claims and then a related historiographical one. Um, and so, you know, for them, number one, like firstly, the U.S. has been the most powerful polity um, in the world since 1945. Um, and this meant that Americans were the ones who uh, most influenced or had the most influence over U.S. foreign policy. Um, and I think at one point they even referred to the United States as, you know, the sun to um, uh, the international order solar system. Um, and then number two, American elites often did things for domestic reasons and slash or didn't know all that much about the rest of the world. Um, uh, and then finally, their historiographical point is that, you know, because of the international and transnational turns in historiography, um, historians have overemphasized the influence of non-American historical actors. And, uh, and so they're, um, you know, making a call for historians to put the U.S. back at the center to study things like the, the Pentagon, the presidency, um, the executive branch more broadly. Um, and so like, 
you know what? One one reading of this article is um, a critique of the big tent approach um, to U.S. foreign relations um, that Chris you, you talked about in some of your um, opening remarks. And so I'm just curious how the three of you read this article and yeah, what your general thoughts are. Um, I mean, yeah, Chris, maybe do you want to start us off? Sure, I'm happy to go first. Um, you know, I think this is. Uh, you know, a response uh, to the establishment of a more plural field uh, in the 1990s and after, uh, and uh, more than that, a response to the fact that pluralism has become something of a consensus uh, in uh, in the field. Um, they do argue uh, in that in that piece, and I, I mean, I've I've heard uh, uh, Fred make arguments about this. Uh, I think the first time I heard this was when uh, he co-authored with Campbell Craig, America's Cold War. And I heard him present on it uh, at a Schaefer, you know, maybe in, I'm trying to think when was my son born, uh, 2010 (laughs) uh, or 2011. Uh, And he used the phrase sort of the international Mm -hmm. steamroller uh, or something along, uh, along those lines. Uh, So this has been a debate that's been going along, going, you know, uh, that's been happening for some uh, for some time, uh, and I think they try to make sort of the sharpest, most compelling version of, of that side of uh, of the debate. Um, you know that uh, the international and transnational uh, and cultural turns uh, potentially lead uh, the field down an anti-status path. And here I'll quote them directly: that de-emphasizes unduly subjects that traditionally stood at the center of the historiography of U.S. foreign relations, policymaking, and its relationship to the projection of power. Uh, and I think the article is useful uh, in terms of, uh, it, you know, that it recounts an important story uh, of uh, the pluralist consensus and sort of the institutional growth uh, um, of Schaefer, I, I, I guess we could say, uh, in the 1990s and, uh, and after. Um, I think they point out uh, some of the excellent work in international and transnational history. They note why it's so appealing. Um, uh, in many ways, what we've been saying uh, for much of this uh, for much of this conversation, um, and then they turn to a case study of the Vietnam of the Vietnam War, uh, in which they also say that you know new studies of North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese politics and society have enriched the field. Um, uh, but they still believe that something something is lost uh, in those. Uh, in those turns, um, uh, before they save, you know, what they think are good future directions, uh, for, uh, you know, sort of state centric and to, you know, to use the same meta- uh, metaphor, a heliocentric, uh, approach. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and I, and I agree that, uh, that these directions are important, right? The rise, um, uh, that they identify the rise of us hyperpower, uh, the creation of bipartisan consensus, uh, in the second half of the 20th century, uh, around American power, the evolution of the national security state, uh, the impact of domestic politics, uh, and then, you know, sort of an elite centered, uh, military, uh, military history. I, I think all of that's, uh, uh, great. Uh, and in fact, uh, some of my own, uh, work that I'm doing now, uh, falls within those, uh, falls within those categories. And I agree broadly that, we do want to understand uh, political, cultural, economic, uh, ideological identity factors that lead uh, the United States to take the uh, position that it has since World War uh, World War II. Um, uh, that is sort of waging constant uh, constant war. Um, I don't necessarily uh, share the same concern that the diffusion of agency uh, in in the field uh, is is that problematic. Um, I think that uh, you know, on the on the contrary, uh, editing this volume um, and the process of of working with different authors on their on their topics uh, led me uh, to feel that even more even more strongly. Um, I suppose I I would also say just uh, as a side note uh, that uh, I think a lot of this concern uh, comes from uh, the state of uh, jobs in the labor market. Uh, for for historians, I think that um, you know that uh, that 2015 I can't remember if it was 2015 or 2016, uh, but the jobs report uh, and the uh, number of historians that are identifying as doing diplomatic or international history uh, and that lower number I think was concerning uh, to a lot of people in the field and uh, and I think adds uh, uh, adds some momentum uh, to this uh, to to their to their viewpoint. 
Um, Emily, do you want to? Yeah, I think what Chris said, I agree totally. Um, one thing I would add that I found, um, well, I'm a 19th centuryist, right? So if I'm reading an article, and I, I really like Danny and Fred a lot. Um, and actually my current book project is, is it sort of in line with um, <laughs> a question Fred asked me several years ago at a conference about policy implications of missionaries. So I, I, I take a lot of their points. Um, I think it's really interesting, but I find it, and you know, you could titles are their own thing, but the, this is their focus here is on post 1945 U.S. foreign relations, and it's suggesting that it is actually about the entirety of the history of U.S. foreign relations. And that's something I think that's actually a broader thing that um, actually that the volume Chris edited um, is a really helpful correction to. Um, because if we look at over, I mean, more of American history happened before 1945 than happened after 1945. That'll be different at some point in the future. But for right now, pre-1945 history is is there. And the, um, I think, emphasis within the American foreign relations on post-45 as those are the questions and those are the issues um, that matter, I find just perplexing. Um, and not really productive. So it's one of the things I was um, saying to Chris earlier, it's as um, an early American historian, it's wonderful looking at the amount of sort of diversity of chronology that he was able to bring into this volume and how many scholars are, you know, working on um, a lot of these questions in earlier periods. And, you know, I think a lot of what Danny and Fred are concerned about here you know their 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 example of the the Vietnam War here is 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 really interesting. I think the point they make about um, was it the sort of the hierarchy of causalities is an interesting thing that we should think about. But I guess I I don't share the a lot of their concerns about the field as a whole. Um, you know I don't know um, the the jobs report that um, Chris talked about. I think that that is a really big part of this. But I'm not sure how much those um descriptors really mean um i mean my job title doesn't include anything about diplomatic history um but i i'm doing it and i think that that's true for a lot of us and so i'm not sure um if there's if the crisis that they're trying to respond to here is actually a crisis megan what about you yeah so i i shared the kind of really positive feelings toward Danny and Fred and have learned so much from their work and from conversations with them. Um, I, I think about exceptionalism as something that is a powerful force in U.S. history. And I think Fred and I really see eye to eye on a lot of those, those um, dynamics and, you know, his points about and their points about thinking about domestic policymaking um, and, and things going on among um, policymakers as a response to electoral politics is incredibly compelling. And, um, and so within that, I, I'm, I'm sort of an American studies scholar who operates with that kind of domestic and foreign frame, even as I've learned so much from scholars who have more actively decentered the American state, um, as, as they themselves note as well. And I think the one point that I was curious to know more about or to be able to like sit down and have this conversation as a group was that that point about causal hierarchies that Emily just brought up as well because I was thinking as I read it about the kind of causal hierarchy hierarchies assuming that certain kinds of events are those that define you know um, a, a very clear set of foreign relations. Um, in other words, I was thinking about events of global significance that might fall outside of this frame. And um, and if if we are um, thinking about um, actors that are shaping the fate, say, of the environment, a global environment that itself has many implications for national security and for you know global inequality and um, and relations between nations, but also the lives of people who circulate around the globe, or in this moment of in incredible immobilization, who are unable to do so because of a globe-spanning pathogen. I just wonder if the the sort of frame and the assumption of hierarchy might 
miss certain important events that that fall out of the kind of calculus of some um, leaders and um, and even members of U.S. Congress. So I guess I've seen a lot of actors shaping material environments in ways that are actively a part of the story of of climate change. And um, and so I wonder if we, we kind of take this advice to its logical conclusion about how we we think about the important processes that sort of defy the the containers that we have for understanding um, the most important events in diplomatic history, um, which tend to center around war or trade relations. But there are these other um, parts of the story about connectors of capitalism and neoliberalism, of international development, um, and and the like that um, that I am, am thinking about a lot just as, as part of my intersection between diplomatic and environmental history. So this would make for a really great conversation, but also I, I think it, it helps to speak to the kinds of things that I've gained by, um, by engaging with that pretty polyvocal and interdisciplinary um, big tent group of, of thinkers in foreign relations as well. Uh, yeah, I agree with uh, uh, what uh, Megan and Emily have been saying, and I believe that when we're thinking about multi-causality uh, and and causal hierarchies, we do need to be very attentive um, uh, to what shapes uh, the hierarchy that they're that they're looking at, uh, right? And they have a, a very interesting graphic um, uh, that sort of uh, elucidates uh, their uh, their causal their causal hierarchy. Um, and I would you know I would say that uh, if you uh, read closely, E.H. Uh, um, e. Carr, uh, um, he has sort of a subtle emphasis on context I, um, that I, I, I believe, you know, um, throws, a, throws a wrench uh, in arguments uh, about uh, the universal applicability of any causal hierarchy to any, any, specific, uh, any specific moment. Uh, here, um, you know, I think that Megan made a really good point with uh, environmental history. Uh, I keep thinking about uh, Beth Lou Williams' uh, arguments about a multi-scalar approach to immigration uh, um, history in the Chinese uh, Chinese must go. Uh, I think that um, a lot of sort of uh, urban histories that move into tran- the tra- transnational realm uh, make a make a similar uh, sort of point uh, that uh, the origins of policy. Uh, often aren't where we would think of if we're thinking about a traditional, you know, a quote-unquote traditional set of causal uh, hierarchies. My my colleague at Fordham, uh, Samantha Iyer, uh, um, has presented on a, on really interesting uh, type of causality where you have uh, sort of um, uh, almost, I guess, food riots uh, in in Egypt uh, and uh, demands being made uh, on the Egyptian state. Uh, uh, by uh, you know sort of very radical uh, groups, uh, in turn forcing the Egyptian state uh, to request uh, grain aid uh, from uh, from the United States. If if I've uh, if I'm remembering that story correctly, so I think that uh, that sort of origin is something that's uh, uh, that's caught uh, when you have the bigger uh, when you have the bigger tent uh, that might uh, that might be missed um, uh, when you have a narrower uh, a narrower perspective. Of it, uh, all that. All that said, yeah. I, I do agree uh, that um, you know uh, when we're talking about the field of U.S. relations, questions of uh, of power and diplomacy are 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 very much at the core uh, in a lot of the work that that uh, that I saw in this uh, in in this volume, uh, if not most of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what um, what's so interesting to think about sort of these. I guess the, the causality question is to like how the state changes over time. And, you know, so, so in my research right now on um, sort of missionary relations with, with the state department over the, the course of the 19th century, uh, I've been thinking a lot about this question of how, you know, who is driving what's happening and is it, you know, people in the field? Um, these are these missionaries that are far away. Is it diplomats? And the answer is, you know, up until pretty late in my story, it's never the, the state. <laughs> The state's reacting to stuff that's happening on the ground. Um, and, you know, that that's makes total sense for how um, how the state is structured in the 19th century. And that's really part of the story I'm telling. Um, and I'm not a 20th centuryist, so you guys can can jump in and correct me if I'm wrong. But the under the, the sort of sense, 
here that the state is one thing and these institutions are, um, you know, strong in this particular kind of way. And Americans in general aren't noticing this stuff that's going on overseas and you know, domestic politics are sort of driving their thinking more than events overseas. I'm like, I, I wonder if that's assuming a lot about um, how these structures actually work and who is, um, so I think it's precisely what this bigger tent approach gives us is ways of thinking about, um, you know, who's, you know, where are these unexpected voices where, that are actually having um, influence on these other kinds of decisions? And I don't think any one, you know, I, you know, I don't know the historiography of the Vietnam War that well. So, you know, I, you know, that, that example that they used is, is, is obviously out of my wheelhouse. But in my reading, the folks who are doing these broader um, kinds of approaches and, and not centering the state, I don't see anybody you know, attributing undue causal power um, to non-state actors and sort of being irresponsible about that. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I mean, we, we should, we should wrap it up, but I just wanted to say that um, I, uh, I, I agree with a lot of what they're saying. I mean, like my dissertation is basically how the United States becomes even more central because of um, the, uh, the presence of the United Nations headquarters in New York. So I, I share a lot of their assumptions, but there, there also, there's also a pretty good case for studying people who don't have causal power, or causal influence. Uh, I, I don't think we should be excluding, um, uh, you know, like a, a, a pretty wide range of different kinds of um, uh, research projects um, because the, um, the, the subjects didn't actually have that kind of power. But anyways, I, <laughs> this conversation could go on for another hour, but unfortunately we do have to wrap it up. And so I, I just want to thank all of you for uh, taking the time to talk to me. Um, the, this, this has been just so much fun and productive, and um, I learned so much from uh, hearing all three of you. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Dexter. Thanks for organizing, Dexter. <laughs> yeah, and I've been speaking with Christopher Dietrich, Emily Conray Crutz, and Megan Black about a companion to U.S. foreign relations, colonial era to the present. And you've been listening to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. <laughs>